Welcome to episode 55 of the Homicide Inc. podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom. In this episode, we are going to be talking about a serial killer in Los Angeles who targeted nothing but beautiful women. He'd killed three women before he was finally apprehended, trying to take the life of a fourth victim who stood brave and chased him out of her house. This is the story of Michael Gargiulo, the so-called Hollywood Ripper. One very interesting facet of this case is that famous actor Ashton Kutcher had a date planned with one of the victims. When he turned up late at her house to pick her up and take her to a party, there was no reply. We will soon find out the horrific story behind that and a lot more. So grab a cup of your favorite poison and get comfy. This one is a goodie. But be forewarned, this is not for the faint of heart. Hollywood, a city full of dreamers, all aspiring to become the next big thing. Singers, models, directors, actors and voice actors. And in this case, designers. It was the night of February 21st, 2001. The L.A. air was still hot in the early evening. 21-year-old fashion student Ashley Ellerin sat in front of a large mirror in her Hollywood bungalow, applying her eyeliner with steady confidence. Her hair was still wet across her back. She could feel the water dripping down her spine, reminding her that she needed to hurry up and get ready. She still needed to curl her hair. He would be there soon. Her designer dress all zipped up, and her high heels sat waiting at the bedroom door. The energy in the room was exhilarating. She was pumped for that evening. She had a hot date with a hot Hollywood hunk, Ashton Kutcher. She still couldn't believe that she was dating the handsome actor from that 70s show. They had arranged to go to an after-party for the Grammy Awards, and she couldn't wait to hobnob with the elite. Just think of all the connections to the fashion world she could make. With one last flick of the wrist and a squirt of perfume, she reached for her curling iron, but stopped when she heard a noise. It was quiet. Probably nothing. She glanced at her watch. He was late. He should be there by now. She heard the front door open and close. Footsteps thudded softly against the carpet, then went silent. He must have had a seat in the living room. She turned back to the mirror and gasped at the figure standing silently behind her. Michael? What are you doing here? But before she could realize what was happening, he had shoved her backward and slammed the door closed behind him. Her date had turned into a nightmare, one that she would not awaken from. Kucher raced the winding streets in his sports car to Ashley's house, preparing himself for the trouble that awaited him. She was going to be pissed, for sure. When he pulled up to the house, he glanced at his watch and grimaced. 11 p.m. He was in big trouble, all right. Taking a deep breath, he knocked on the door and waited. But no answer. He knocked again, louder this time. No answer. He peered through the closest windows and didn't see her. He did, however, see red wine stains on the floor. She was most likely mad at him, had a glass of wine, and went to bed. 
Sighing in resignation, he turned around and left the house. He'd call her in the morning. Spoiler alert, he didn't. Well, he did, but she didn't answer. I wonder why. That morning, one of Ashley's roommates had returned home, tired from a late night out. As she entered the house, the hairs on her neck stood up. She couldn't explain it, but something felt really wrong. The red stains on the floor caught her attention. She too thought someone must have spilt red wine. What else could it be? Well, her question was answered rather horrifically when she walked up the staircase. Lying on the landing outside her bedroom door was Ashley. The floor around her was soaked in a pool of dark red blood. The nightmare carried on in the bathroom. The walls and floor were covered in blood splatter, like someone had dipped their paintbrush into a bucket of red paint and flicked it around the room. The roommate barely noticed that the hairdryer still sat on the counter, or that the bathtub was still damp. The killer had just left. She called the police. The call came through to the LAPD at around 9.15 a.m. that morning, and Detective Tom Small had answered the call. Upon arriving at the scene, the police were absolutely shocked at the gruesome sight before them. It was a bloodbath. Small, who had been on the force for many years, described it as one of the most gruesome crime scenes he's ever encountered. According to police, she was stabbed in her front, back, neck, and the back of her head. The wounds and scratches on her hands and arms suggested that they were defense wounds. She fought desperately against her attacker. The coroner stated that she had been stabbed 47 times, some at least six inches deep, and the cut on her neck was so deep that her head was nearly decapitated. There was blood everywhere. Detectives soon realized that her body had been moved and posed on the carpet. After speaking to Ashley's loved ones, detectives with the LAPD began looking for a man whom her friends referred to as Mike the Furnace Guy. They eventually found his full name and a driver's license ID photo. When the news of this brutal crime came out, the community was shocked. How could somebody do this? Let's rewind a little to August 14, 1993, in Glenview, Illinois. 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio had been found dead on the back step of her apartment. Her father had found her body. She had been stabbed to death. Police confirmed that she had a broken arm and was stabbed 12 times. The evening before, Trisha had met up with some friends for dinner and a scavenger hunt as a celebration for graduating high school and one last get-together before everyone headed off for college. After dropping off her friends, she arrived home at 1 a.m. Police were unable to find her killer or a motive. The case went cold. With the development in technology and DNA analysis, Cook County sheriffs had begun to re-examine evidence from the case and had the DNA found at the scene retested. They were able to find a match from the samples they had collected from each person who had been in contact with Trisha before her murder. That match was Michael Gargiulo. Around the corner from Gargiulo's boyhood home lived the Picaccio family. 
Doug Boccaccio was a friend of Gargiulo's, and they both attended Glenbrook South High School with Doug's older sister, Tricia. This homicide would later earn Gargiulo the sick nickname, the Boy Next Door Killer. Like Ashley Ellerin's case in L.A., Gargiulo always seemed to be around and in the picture when bad things happened. Gargiulo had driven Trisha Picaccio to a friend's house just two days before her murder and was questioned by authorities. No charges were ever filed against him, and the case was handed over to the cold case squad. But with their new evidence, they weren't going to give up. They suspected it was him. But there was a slight hitch in their investigation, as Michael Gargiulo had left the state and moved to California to avoid the cops and to see about starting an acting career. It was 2002, and a couple of the cops from Cook County flew out to California to ask the LAPD for assistance in finding Gargiulo. Well, when they arrived at the station, they were in for a very pleasant surprise. Tom Small recalls the Cook County cops asking if they had seen Gargiulo, to which he had responded, Well, guys... Right now, he's a potential suspect in a murder investigation. What do you guys have? It was an unbelievable coincidence that they should find him just like that. Detectives from the LAPD discovered that Gargiulo would visit Ashley Ellerin's house at odd hours or would often sit outside her house in his car late at night. Yeah, I think we're all picking up major stalker vibes here with this guy. Cook County Police eventually tracked him down and had a DNA sample taken at a hospital emergency room. It wasn't easy, as he refused to give them the sample, but eventually caved. It was a positive match with genetic material found underneath Trisha Picaccio's fingernails. He was snookered. Or was he? The Cook County State Attorney's Office refused to indict Gargiulo, claiming the DNA could have been exchanged through casual contact and to rub salt into the wounds of the victim's family. The LAPD were not able to find any physical evidence linking him to Ashley's death, so no charges were filed against him. He'd gotten away with it. Well, for now. And so began a disturbing and growing list of victims. In late 2005, Gargiulo, who had now considered himself a free man, had moved into an apartment with a woman in El Monte, located in East L.A. Life was good for him, and got even better, when a lady by the name of Maria Bruno moved in. Maria was 32 years old and had four children, although at the time her ex-husband Irving had custody of them. Maria was recently divorced and was ready to start her new life. The apartment she had chosen was known for its good security. She was excited and was enjoying her new home when tragedy struck, only 10 days after moving in. It was December 1st, 2005, and Gargiulo snuck into her apartment via the kitchen window. He entered her room and found her sleeping, vulnerable and defenseless. He attacked her in a rage-filled, murderous salvo of knifings. The next morning, the ex-husband on a welfare check entered the apartment and found Maria's mutilated body. He called 911 to report the horrors that he had uncovered. 
police were in for another gruesome murder scene. Upon arrival, they noticed that she had been stabbed 17 times in the chest. Her throat had been slit so badly, her head hung precariously. And what was most shocking and disturbing was that her breasts had been severed. Like his other murders, Gargiulo had posed the body before leaving the apartment. Police recognized this detail from the previous two murders. The only clue found at the crime scene was a blue surgical shoe slipper, which contained a single drop of Bruno's blood and was discovered outside her apartment. They began their search for the killer. Gargiulo was on a roll. At least three brutally murdered women under his belt. The high he felt, controlling, killing, mutilating. He needed more. Enter 26-year-old Michelle Murphy. It was 2008, and Gargiulo had moved in with yet another girlfriend. This guy was obviously killer in the bedroom. <clears throat> the Santa Monica apartment they moved into was opposite from Michelle Murphy's, and he soon discovered that he could see directly into her bedroom from his second-story window. Michelle, for the love of God, keep your blinds closed and doors locked. Don't you know who just moved in? April 28, 2008, around 10.15 p.m., Michelle turned out the lights and went to bed. She was awakened less than an hour after falling asleep. She recalled opening her eyes to see a hooded figure standing over her, and before she could even blink, he was on top of her, his legs straddling her, holding her down. In court, she told the jury that she could tell it was a knife. She thought it was serrated. She grabbed at the knife with both hands and wrapped her hands around the blade. She was trying to hold the knife and get some leverage to stop him from stabbing her. She was still being stabbed and was trying to wiggle around to keep from getting hit by the blade. Murphy was stabbed numerous times on her arms, chest, shoulders, and abdomen. There was blood everywhere. At five feet, she wasn't particularly tall or big, but fought with every fiber of her strength to hold her killer at bay. Her screams had ricocheted off the walls in the small apartment. She kept screaming over and over and over, Why? Why are you doing this? but he didn't answer. He just kept attacking. The fight carried on for a while. Michelle kicked and lunged and scratched at her attacker until one final burst of strength, she was able to kick him off her and onto the floor. He got to his feet unsteadily and ran into the living room, making a run for the front door. Michelle, now unafraid and adrenalized, ran after him. She could see that he was injured, and what was most peculiar was that as he opened the door to leave, he whispered over his shoulder, I'm sorry. Well, this time, thankfully, police were able to trace Gargiulo to the scene of the crime. The blood drops from his injury were a match. Gargiulo was arrested in June 2008 on an attempted murder charge and held on a million dollars bail. A search of his car produced a bag of tools and blue shoe slippers. Hmm, just like the ones found at the Maria Bruno murder scene. A subsequent search of his old apartment in El Monte 
led to the discovery of the matching booty used in the Bruno slaying. Gargiulo was charged with the murders of Ellerin and Bruno in September 2008, and he also faced the special circumstance allegation of lying in wait for his victims. It would be another three years before prosecutors in Cook County, Illinois, felt they had enough to indict. And finally, in July 2011, Michael Gargiulo was charged with the 1993 murder of Tricia Picaccio. And so began the trial that captivated and shocked the world as more and more victims came forward. So, who exactly is Michael Gargiulo? Well, he was born in 1976 in Glenview, Illinois. He had six siblings. And in one of his sessions with a therapist, he claims that he did not have a happy childhood, saying that he was often physically abused by his father and his siblings. However, there was never any evidence to back up this claim. This doesn't mean that he wasn't a troubled child. In his school years, he was known for being a quick-tempered bully. One of his former childhood friends told the press, this guy would go from normal to crazy in a split second. A switch would flip, and he would just become almost inhuman. Trisha Picaccio wasn't his only victim in Glenview. In 1995, he was in a romantic relationship that ended sourly. The woman, who was only 17 at the time, revealed that he had raped her, and she claimed that during a social visit, Gargiulo handcuffed her, removed her pants, and assaulted her. Sexual assault and murder weren't his only specialties. He was involved in a battery incident at Glenbrook South High School and was caught breaking into unlocked cars, pleading guilty to burglary, and placed on an 18-month probation. Shortly after this, he followed one of his brothers out to L.A., where, just like everybody else, he wanted to be a famous actor. Well, this hadn't materialized, and because he was trained in martial arts and boxing, he naturally got a job as a bouncer at the Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. This was a popular bar often filled with rich and beautiful people, the people Gargiulo wanted to be. It was at this job that he made friends with two other bouncers. The three became close, close enough that Gargiulo felt he could confess his sins to these new friends. The two claimed that one day in 2000, while driving around L.A., Gargiulo admitted to the Picaccio murder. But the two didn't believe him. Just a macabre boast, they thought. According to multiple people, Gargiulo was known to lie and embellish his stories. Most had taken what he said with a grain of salt, his friendship with the two bouncers didn't last long. Gargiulo was fired from the Rainbow Bar because he'd gotten into an argument with one of the patrons and punched them. Now listen, there are two golden rules when you work retail. Number one, the customer is always, always right. And number two, you don't punch the guests. Clearly, Gargiulo didn't read the rules when he got the job. Well, after losing this job as a bouncer... He turned to trade, where he worked odd jobs as an air conditioner and heating repairman. Now this is how he met and befriended victim Ashley Ellerin and others. And this is where one of his nicknames comes from. The Chiller Killer, 
I'm not making that up, guys. That is one of his nicknames. It's 2007. Gargiulo married Ana Luz Gonzalez. But when Prince Charming was arrested for murder and rape just over a year after their nuptials, she discovered the monster and filed for divorce. Next up, the trial. Gargiulo's trial officially began in May 2019. The media quickly dubbed him the serial sexual thrill killer. Bit of a tongue twister. Can you ever have too many serial killer names? Look, he's got the chiller killer, the serial sexual thrill killer, the killer next door, the Hollywood ripper. I wonder which is his favorite. Gargiulo's trial officially began in May 2019. Oh, I already said that. The trial, the trial was difficult to watch and listen to, as the gruesome evidence was presented by prosecution and witnesses. What really put this trial into social media orbit was Ashton Kutcher's involvement in the trial. In his statement in court, he'd said he'd looked through a window and saw what he thought was red wine spilled on the floor before leaving, assuming she had already gone out. He later stated that he was freaking out when he heard that she had been killed, especially in such a violent and horrific manner. The lead prosecutor said that all women were young, good-looking, and had a zest for life, and all lived near Gargiulo. He had a type, and that was beautiful women. The prosecutor stated that Gargiulo had a pattern. He watched and waited for the perfect opportunity to kill in blitz-style knife attacks and then escape detection. Now, this was an interesting point that was brought up as a former girlfriend of Gargiulo claimed that in 2003, he had punched her in the face and threatened to kill her, claiming he would get away with it because of his, quote, extensive knowledge of forensics, which explains how detectives couldn't link any DNA or physical evidence to him at the time of Ashley Ellerin's murder. The key witness in the trial, Michelle Murphy, who was a survivor of Gargiulo's final attack, gave her testimony, and silence filled the courtroom as the jury listened to her terrifying experience. During the penalty phase of the trial, Murphy recounted the fear that gripped her following the vicious bedside attack. She spent months tossing and turning, fearful of the dark, unable to sleep, and racked with insomnia. The attack had a profound effect on this brave young woman. She also testified to never having gone back to the apartment and for a certain period steered clear of her former neighborhood altogether. Ashley's family also spoke in court, describing the heart-wrenching grief they felt at their daughter's death. Cynthia, Ashley's mother, said in court, that she started crawling around the bedroom on her hands and knees like an animal, screaming. Her father, Mike, had said he would never stop hearing his wife's primal scream, and it will haunt him eternally. Interestingly, Gargiulo's defense team argued his innocence in the murders and claimed he had, quote, no recollection of attacking Murphy due to mental illness, a classic move, and slap in the face to the grieving families. Well, this approach didn't work for them. Neither the jury nor the judge sided with the defense. They wanted to see this monster behind bars. After several hours of deliberation, 
A jury recommended the death penalty for Michael Gargiulo on October 18, 2019, but his sentencing in California has been postponed due to defense requests. And there was another problem. In 2019, the practice of the death penalty had been banned under Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. There were some political obstacles that needed to be tackled and loopholes to exploit in order to get that to happen. Then came the dreaded COVID-19 pandemic, which put a halt in the proceedings, something that Gargiulo no doubt welcomed with open arms. Well, in July of 2021, L.A. Superior Court, finding Gargiulo's crimes vicious and frightening, handed down the sentence of death. However, this sentence of death in California has become not much more than symbolic as the last person on death row to be executed was in 2006. Gargiulo is currently imprisoned at the L.A. County Jail, his court days far from over. He still needs to be extradited to Illinois, where he will stand trial for the murder of Trisha Boccaccio. If found guilty, he will be handed another sentence of 25 years to life. Throughout the court proceedings, Gargiulo has maintained his innocence. Of course he has and even told the police at the L.A. County Jail that just because his DNA was found on ten women doesn't mean he murdered them, hmm, prompting detectives to assume there are more victims. Smart move on his part. Police now believe that his death count is at 15 women, but there currently isn't enough evidence and may not be for many years to come. Well, we certainly hope, for the sake of the grieving families and surviving victims, that justice will be served soon. The Hollywood Ripper, the killer next door, the chiller killer, whatever you want to call this creep, it's a shame that he wasn't caught much earlier, before so many victims began to pile up. And that's all we've got on this monster. We will update if any other information comes in. Perhaps he confesses to more murders. We shall see. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us here on the Homicide Inc. podcast. And thank you indeed for your help in spreading the word about our podcast. And be sure and check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive Homicide Inc. podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, you can always buy us a cup of coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website where you can hear all the podcasts. Your contributions are hugely appreciated. Until the next episode of the Homicide Inc. podcast, ciao for now. <laughs>